1: We begin with this thought from today's guest. Mental illness is fast becoming a more accepted and visible part of the human condition. We are now acknowledging that mental illness is more common than we used to think.
0: Nobody's Normal, Ending the Stigma of Mental Illness
2: with Richard Grinker. My daughter views a lot of uh, her autism as her strength. She has an amazing memory. These are really, really inspiring things for me when we can see somebody that has a disability, but is leading a meaningful life.
0: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
1: About one in five Americans live with a mental illness, according to federal statistics. Well over half of them receive no treatment.
0: There has been a great stigma around conditions such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, attention deficit disorder, autism, anorexia, bulimia, post-traumatic stress disorder. The list goes on and on.
1: We're going to look at the causes and cures for that stigma with Richard Grinker, professor of anthropology and international affairs at the George Washington University.
0: He's the author of the new book, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Richard Grinker joins us remotely from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm honored. Let's start, Richard, in this current moment. We live with social distancing, remote working and learning because of the coronavirus. Is the pandemic likely to lead to an even greater crisis of
2: mental illness than we've
0: experienced already?
2: I think the answer to that is yes. The social isolation, uh, the anxiety, particularly for people who are older, and who are at greater risk of dying from COVID is is considerable. There has been a disruption of our social supports and that is the only thing that all mental health experts can agree actually helps people with mental illnesses. But on the other hand, I think that the pandemic provides us with an opportunity to make progress in destigmatizing mental illness, to say to everybody, look, you know, you're in this situation, which is a global crisis, it's reasonable that you should be suffering. You know, it's not something that is a sign of weakness because everyone is suffering.
1: The title of your book is Nobody's Normal. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I learned about the problems of the word normal through my daughter. Uh, I wrote a book called Unstrange Minds before this one, which is about my daughter's uh, growth and development. Uh, she was diagnosed with autism in 1994. And one of the things I learned was that if I tried to compare her to some kind of imagined normal out there, I would always be disappointed. But if I compared her to herself. I was incredibly gratified to see how much progress she was making. And, you know, I think that this this word normal, it's 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 actually fairly new the way we talk about it today. Before the mid 20th century, it was a statistical term, meaning average. If you called somebody normal, it was like saying they were mediocre. Today, you know, normal is something to aspire to, some kind of ideal. But I really think it's a damaging illusion and one that uh, continues to hurt us.
0: In the past, Richard, people were banished to asylums or given lobotomies for mental illness. Fifty years ago, autism was thought to be the result of bad parenting. Stigma about this Has very deep roots in our society, doesn't it?
2: It really does. Um, Ever since we separated illnesses into the strictly physical and the strictly mental. And, uh, you know, the more we think about things as being brain based, um, the more likely we are to fear that person. And this really goes against the grain. You know, the scientists throughout the world are saying we need to get rid of stigma by making sure that diseases, that mental illnesses are diseases of the brain, not diseases of the self, you know, or your character or moral turpitude. But the history of mental illness tells us something different, which is that when we think about mental illnesses as the result of brain disorders, we create more stigma. I mean, for those of you listening, you know, if you've experienced anxiety or sadness or depression as a result of the pandemic, does it make more sense to talk about your feelings as a brain disease or as a sort of human response to a set of really powerful stressors?
1: Part of what got you thinking about this, this issue of of what's normal and how people respond to stress is the history of how the military tended to and society tended to regard uh, soldiers who had been through a great deal of stress on the battlefield and and different ways that they they struggled with that.
2: Well, sure, you know the military story is interesting because it's it's relatively untold the growth of the mental health professions really happens as the result of wars. So, you know, uh, we were just talking about how people used to be put in asylums. Well, those were the people that were psychiatry subjects, not the more common mental illnesses or, you know, people functioning in society. But when wars broke out, they were, as my grandfather put it, Uh, who ran psychiatric operations in North Africa in World War II, these were normal people in abnormal circumstances.
0: So what happened to mental health treatment
2: as a result of wars? And so beginning in World War I, we really see the movement of psychological professions out of the asylum and into the general population. It expands the purview of human suffering And people start to think about things like anxiety and depression, which they didn't before, because these weren't people that needed to be in asylums, right? They were people like you and me. And and that was something that was a really big advance. And I'm proud my grandfather was was part of that. And he was inspired in large part by Sigmund Freud to do that, uh, with whom he studied
1: in Vienna. How did the military help change the culture to be less prone to seeing these as moral failures?
2: Well, one thing that the military did, um, you know, both in World War I and World War II was to come up with terms, words that didn't hurt. And so instead of calling the men in World War I who had various uh, uh, symptoms, physical symptoms of war trauma, uh, like paralysis or mutism uh, or, or catatonia, they called it shell shock. And shell shock was specifically designed to be a non-stigmatizing term because the term that had been used previously for such symptoms was hysteria. And hysteria was a feminized term. So if a man was called hysterical, it was basically, you know, emasculating him. So soldiers and doctors together uh, came up with the concept of shell shock over time. Um, In World War II, people were more likely to express their distress through words like anxiety uh, or worry or fear, Uh, more indexing internal states as opposed to World War I where people expressed their symptoms through physical means. And the term war neurosis developed. And when the term war neurosis developed, neurosis was thought of as something that everyone had. Every human being has neurosis. What we see is not the gradual... Growth of the psychological professions through the 20th century, but rather bursts of progress that coincide with wars, followed by periods between wars of forgetting and stasis, and then renewal and new bursts of energy within wars. Uh, we forget that wars can sometimes change societies and, you know, can have positive outcomes. I think anybody. In the United States, who's undergone any kind of surgical procedure uh, in in their lives has benefited from something that the military did, whether it was the development of anesthesia or, you know, even somebody getting gender-affirming surgery today who's transgender, those surgeries were developed by the military to repair uh, uh, wounds of soldiers in battle.
0: We are in a war right now with COVID in the U.S. alone. In the past twelve plus months, five hundred fifty thousand people have died—way more than in previous conventional wars. Do you think there will be advances resulting from the pandemic?
2: Well, so we don't know yet, right? Because we're—it's—we're happening. We're in it. It's happening now. But um, all the psychiatry departments that I've communicated to are talking about an increased number of patients. You have an increased number of patients. Maybe it means people are sicker, but maybe it means also that people are more comfortable seeking care. It could be that the pandemic is making us much more open to the idea that uh, emotional suffering is and, and getting treatment for it uh, may be a sign of re- strength and resilience, and not you know and not weakness. Um, I think that one of the things that's happening in the pandemic is we're kind of you know for. <laughs> don't want to undercut my title, but we're normalizing mental illness.
1: You have a background as an anthropologist, not as a psychiatrist, and that gives you perhaps a a broader perspective on how these things are regarded in different cultures. Can you tell us a little bit about, starting with our culture, the kinds of stigmas that are still prevalent and that your book is trying to help us figure out ways to rise above or get beyond.
2: Yeah. you know, unfortunately, there's still an idea out there that if we have enough education and awareness, we will get rid of stigma. But what my research is showing, what I write about in Nobody's Normal, is that if we want to really change things, we need to understand what the really deep rooted fundamental reasons are why mental illnesses were stigmatized in the first place. And it doesn't have to do with ignorance or lack of education, it has to do with whatever a society's concept of the ideal person is. If our concept of the ideal person can include somebody who is disabled, well then, that person with the disability is gonna be much better off. But our concept of the ideal person has been, since the origins of capitalism, the autonomous, independent worker who maximizes his or her gains with an insufficiency of means, uh, leaves the house at the arbitrary age of 18 and 21 and establishes a new independent household and isn't dependent on others. And that kind of illusion that human humanity is about independence of course, we're all dependent, is something that led to the stigma. So when we look today at the kinds of stigma that still really persist and are stubborn, like the stigma against um, addictions, the stigma about uh, schizophrenia and um, other conditions that involve psychosis, those are conditions that evoke for people a sense of a loss of control, a loss of independence a loss of the ability to be you know, your own master accountable and responsible to yourself. So the the more the sense that you are violating that ideal person, that, that notion of the ideal, the more stigma there will be. And, Do you
0: think that stigma is more ingrained in America and other Western nations than it is in most other parts of the world?
2: Well, yeah, that's a tough question to answer. But I mean, the thing about the United States is that um, stigma here... It is often kind of, it really is like a brand. You know, the word stigma comes from a branding, uh, the, the ancient Greek term for a branding on a person. Um, and we have come to produce certain kinds of labels that seem to last one's life, right? Like one is a homosexual in the past. We've talked about the homosexual, or one is the, uh, uh, a a is handicapped or crippled. These are terms that we've you know, used in the past. And even before then, there were terms like the idiot, the feeble-minded, uh, the insane. Those kinds of things really stick with you. But in some of the cultures in which I've lived, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, you only have a label of sickness when you're sick when you actually are are, are ill. And so the person with a psychosis in the United States might be labeled insane, but the person with a psychosis in someplace else is not insane unless they are really going far out uh, of, of the bounds of their society. Plus, many communities, many countries have roles for people that are acceptable. So for example, somebody who may hear voices uh, and lots and lots of people who have no sicknesses at all, by the way, hear voices. Uh, someone who hears voices in another part of the world may be seen to be in touch with God or to be more likely to become a healer or a shaman because they are in touch with this you know, spirit world and hearing voices by itself isn't a sign of psychosis. In Native American communities, hearing the voices of one's dead ancestor can be considered normal.
1: You say that if a culture can produce a stigma, if, if, if sti- a stigma is, is socially constructed in some way, then a society should also be able to change the rules and eradicate it. How?
2: Well, yeah, I know because stigma is not something that's in our nature, right? We We, we, we learn it. If we learn it, then we can we can change it. You know, going to your previous question about anthropology, yeah, that's the goal of anthropology, to kind of denaturalize things. Anthropology is the study of other cultures, but it's not just that. That's only half of it. It's also about coming back to our own society and looking at it in a new light. Margaret Mead, you know, back in the 1930s, she said, "Hey, in New Guinea, there are societies in which women are the aggressors and men are the ones who like to stay at home and put makeup on and gossip. Uh, If that's the case, then our gender constructs are ones that we've made, right? And we can change them. And I think that's a really empowering message. We don't have to accept what we have. And certainly my students aren't. I see a big, big sea change with them, basically trying to, you know, take ownership of the terms and the ideas that used to hurt. Speaking of
0: change, our show is called How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Richard Grinker about his book, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today. Richard, we mentioned this at the beginning of the show that you've said that, that mental illness is fast becoming a more accepted and visible part of the human
2: condition. That could be hopeful, right? I think so. It's certainly more visible in the young generation that I teach in university i'm thinking of the man who's stood up at the beginning of an introductory lecture class with 300 students in the class and said i have tourette's disorder and i might blurt things out or say things that might shock you or it might even be offensive just letting you all know or the student who said uh, getting ADHD, uh, getting a diagnosis of ADHD was the best day of my freshman year because for the first time somebody finally saw that I was not lazy or stupid, that I needed help. Or the autistic student who says to me, I have poor eye contact. It will look like I'm not paying attention to you, professor, but I am, and please feel free to call on me. That's visibility that is not created by science. You know, there's no scientific discovery that made that visible. These are human beings who have decided on their own or in collaboration with their family to uh, to take ownership of what is part of their life and part of their person and and not be ashamed of it if we have a framework for understanding people you know a framework that's non-stigmatizing that can be incredibly uh helpful
1: we live in a multicultural society where not everyone is part of the exact same set of social norms. How do stigmas express themselves in, in among different cultural or racial minorities? And are some people maybe more vulnerable than others in our American society?
2: Sure. You know, uh, epilepsy is, is not particularly stigmatizing in the United States anymore. Uh, but it remains perhaps the most stigmatized uh, condition in many, many parts of the world, where it is thought that people are, you know, sort of possessed by demons, or you know, they're 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 banished from their families, or fired from their jobs, or someone with seizures, uh, their spouses may start to think about divorce. Uh, so there is no one condition that is more or less stigmatized always right it's all it's always a process from each society um, de- being deaf used to be highly stigmatized in the united states but even at the same time that it was stigmatized in the united states there were places that where where deafness was not at all stigmatized for example in the 19th century it may have, deafness was stigmatized in boston but not at all on Martha's Vineyard because in Martha's Vineyard they had hereditary deafness. Everybody spoke sign language there. You didn't even always know who was deaf and who wasn't deaf.
0: You have a wonderful story about your daughter who is autistic and doesn't necessarily view it as a handicap or a disorder in her case, right?
2: Yeah, my, my daughter views a lot of uh, her autism as her strength. I mean, she has incredible visual spatial skills. Uh, Actually, this morning we were at a furniture store and they had an area with a jigsaw puzzle uh, just to show what you could do, I guess, with one of their tables that they were selling that you could use it. And she just sat down and boom, 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 put the puzzle together uh, in a second. And she can do most jigsaw puzzles picture side down. Uh, (laughs) She has an amazing memory. These are really, really inspiring things for me. When... We can see somebody that has a disability, but is leading a meaningful life.
0: And you write about how she was
2: speaking in public and people started fidgeting. Um, Oh, you know, that's a great, I think I'm really glad you brought that up because we were, I was just saying, you know, that frame, if you have a framework that is helpful, you don't see something as weird or bizarre. So yeah, she was giving this graduation speech, first time anybody with a disability had done so, to 3,000 people. Most of them didn't know her. Either they were parents or they were kids who were not in the you know contained special ed classes like she was. And uh, she does not sound like everybody else. She has a particular kind of unusual rhythmic pattern to her voice, and she sometimes uses unusual words. She's very formal. She says beverage rather than drink, undergarment rather than underwear. And you could hear whispers and you know murmurs and you know, murmurs are the sounds of, st- of stigma. but in, then, in the audience, yeah, in the audience, you could hear that. And then there get got to be a point. In you know, very early on in her speech in which she said, people with autism like me. And you could just hear the audience quiet down because now they had a framework for understanding her, a framework that over the course of her life had become much more acceptable, uh, less stigmatizing. We, we, we didn't keep it a secret. Um, the word autism is just so much more well-known. And, you know, it was an extraordinary experience, Um, not the least of which is because she got a standing
1: ovation. Oh, what a wonderful story. Now, my partner, Richard, is going to be upset that I'm asking a sort of long question here, but I I want to get to something that I...
0: That's where
2: Jim isn't normal.
1: (laughs) Go ahead, because
2: uh, my wife always says my answers are too long. So go ahead and ask a a long question.
1: So as as a longtime magazine editor, one thing I learned early on was I did not want a staff where everyone was just like me. It really helped to have a diverse range of people. I might have someone who's almost pathologically shy, but a brilliant copy editor who can stay focused and and enjoys working alone and being passionate about making the copy perfect. And somebody else might be a very brash, noisy person who's good at generating ideas. And the art people might look at the world very differently. And it just made me realize that when people talk about diversity, it's not just a cliche. We really are a, a, a group that has... To work together on something really is stronger when it's diverse, and can we make our society more open to seeing the strengths of people who are who are kind of out there on one of these spectrums or another?
2: That's a great question, and I talk in the book about some of the employers who are really paying attention to having a diverse uh, employee pool. Some of them. Uh, particularly, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, kept telling me, "Look, we're not hiring people with autism because of we're compassionate. We're not hiring them out of pity. Pity is just stigma clothed as compassion. We're hiring people with autism because the people on the autism spectrum that we're getting through our pipeline from high school are really good at looking at code." and computer code and figuring out where there are breaks in the and and the links. And remarkably too the employers that I write about in nobody's normal say that the autism programs have been a kind of tide raising all boats so that people with depression or women aging going through uh, some discomfort around menopause are more and more open to speaking with their managers about their needs.
0: We talk about mental illness much more today, often in self-deprecating ways, when we say things like I've got OCD or I'm a little P- PTSD about that. Are those terms good things? I mean, the way we're talking now much more about mental illness in, in even our sort of everyday lives?
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful question because I face this issue all the time. There are people who, who get annoyed with me when i say that i think it's okay to use words like ocd ptsd colloquially because they think that it's kind of masking the seriousness of those conditions um you know when you hear a celebrity like jerry seinfeld say he's autistic i don't think he thinks and i don't think anybody actually thinks that he would meet the criteria for a person with autism in some sort of scientific protocol But I think that by using these terms, we're putting ourselves on a spectrum where we understand that we can move along it. And maybe the student who says that she has PTSD from a a difficult econ exam, won't take an econ class again in her life, but by using PTSD, she's disarming that word or that phrase to hurt. She's taken the teeth out of it. The more we use these terms, Uh, the more we can change their meaning. How do you think we're
0: doing today as a society? Are mental professionals more understanding about mental illness?
2: Well, I think we're doing uh, pretty well at um, making sure that the categories we use are not as stigmatizing as they used to, but I have nothing against labels and categories because we need them. We can't communicate without them. We have to have terms and words that will generate services and treatments, right? But we need to do so in a way that is non-stigmatizing and also reflects our appreciation that sometimes labels can actually change the way people behave. So there can be negatives. So for example, in a famous sociological study of men who, and en- young adolescents um, who entered into a school for the blind uh, by the uh, sociologist Robert Smith it's called The Making of Blind Men, he talks about how these men, once they they went into the school and were labeled blind, stopped using any of the residual vision they had because now they saw themselves as blind, so They weren't even going to try to look and use their vision. And so we can see how labels can actually change one's behavior.
0: Richard Grinker, thank you very much for joining
2: us on How Do We Fix It? Oh, well, thanks. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate your great questions.
0: Uh, That's Richard Grinker coming up next, our recommendation, and then our conversation.
1: Richard, it's your turn to let our listeners know what they should be reading, listening to, watching from your your vast survey of the media (laughs) landscape.
0: I've picked a book this time, Jim. It's a book I've just read by Scott Anderson. It's called The Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, A Tragedy in Three Acts. Kind of sounds like an opera. And in a way, it is. It's a remarkable story of these four different men who were caught up um, in various aspects of the launch of the Cold War uh, at the beginnings of the CIA. And as a history, it's great, but it almost reads like a novel. Uh, The four individuals that Scott Anderson profiles. Utterly fascinating, a highly recommended book, The Quiet Americans.
1: It sounds like it'd be right up my alley.
0: So we heard Richard Grinker talking about mental illness in constructive, compassionate, Even hopeful ways. I think part of what he's saying is the flip side to what we've heard a fair amount about on this podcast and in other places concerning what's going on at college campuses and universities with trigger warnings and at times overly cautious communications and speech warnings. What Richard Grinker describes is greater acceptance of various mental conditions and a push for less stigma and more understanding for people who are struggling. Lives. Right.
1: And, you know, I, I want to make the point. I'm a real skeptic about the medicalization of a lot of aspects of what should be. He, he would want to avoid the word normal, but I think of manageable distress, that people should be encouraged to seek help when they need it, but not to ask society to completely reorganize itself just because they find a certain idea uh, challenging. that said, I don't have a problem with trigger warnings. You know, if someone's a, a, a survivor of sexual violence and a teacher wants to say, by the way, you know, this next chapter has a rape scene and I just want to give people a heads up, I think that's fine. Uh, it's when people wield the demand for those things as a way of shutting down other people's speech or, or putting certain topics entirely off limits, that's where we start having a problem. We should try not to encourage that. We should try to help people be stronger, not encourage them to, to use weakness as a form of power over others.
0: And at least in some ways, it appears, we are becoming a kinder and more accepting society, especially when when it comes to uh, mental illness. And that is encouraging.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There was something else that Richard said that I really thought was important. Somebody giving a quick flip through this book, they might feel like it's saying, in our Western society, we stigmatize these things, we label these things, but look at the look at the Navajo. They have a better approach to people with schizophrenia. Look at these, you know, the, the, this group, other societies do a much better job of this. And it was interesting. He brought up examples of societies that actually are, are were at least far less tolerant. And he talked about how epilepsy is often seen as something extremely frightening and, and, and alarming and um, that, you know, would maybe even require somebody being, being, driven out of a a society, and how it was normalized a long time ago in U.S. society, a relatively long time, certainly in our lifetimes. Uh, So I thought that's a positive thing. All societies have the potential, the capacity for intolerance, and all societies have the capacity to change and improve. And I think that's a really good lesson.
0: This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies.
1: And I'm Jim Meggs. Our
0: producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of
1: the Democracy Group.